All right, with that, let's turn to Luke chapter 10, verses 21 through 24. In 1974, Hungarian sculptor and professor of architecture, Erno Rubik, designed a puzzle called the Rubik's Cube. How many of you have played with one of those? Everybody has. See, it became a worldwide fad, and over 300 million of them have been sold. I mean, they had different levels. They had the two by two cube and uh, the three by three and the four by four. And if, you know, you were really a brainiac, a five by five cube. And everybody was just, it was just fun to get scramble one of these and try and get all the right colors on each of the four sides. And soon people were so obsessed with them that they began to develop strategies and procedures to get all the collars in the right places. And, and there were competitions where people who had learned these strategies and secrets could figure out how to put all the puzzle together and get all the colors on the right sides all uh, uh, as quick as possible. But you know, once, once the secret is learned, once the, the steps to reassemble the colors on, in the right places is learned, then it's just a matter of, of going through the motions and, you know, maybe seeing if you could pick up speed. Well, we're working our way through the doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation, and it is a puzzle. It is like the Rubik's Cube. And many people have for many years fiddled and fiddled and fiddled with it, and they just think to themselves, I just don't know. How could that be true? I mean, how can God save us and it's not by works and yet we have to believe? How is it that no one seeks God and every Christian seeks God and is saved? How is it that we are commanded to exercise our wills to believe and yet salvation is not of us and no one seeks God? How can that be? How come the gospel is preached to all and yet only the elect believe? How is it that God commands everybody to repent, but yet not everybody repents? But if God is sovereign and he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, then why doesn't he save everybody? This is a problem. This is a puzzle and it has to be solved. In order to solve the puzzle of God's sovereignty and salvation, you have to learn certain things from the Bible. And if you go just directly to the meat of the issue, I've never met anyone who understood the puzzle correctly, who didn't start at the primary steps. So this is what people do. They get these questions like this And it bothers them. And so they take several approaches. Here's one approach. I don't know how it works. I'm just going to believe it. Okay, that's one approach. And some of you might be there. Another approach is, hey, I just don't want to think about these certain verses because they cause me grief. And so that's kind of like planned obsolescence. You just like, I'm not going to, I don't know. Let's not talk about that. Or here's another approach. You know, I know that's what it says, but let's redefine these words so they mean something God didn't mean them to mean. And that way they'll fit in with our little cozy view of how we want salvation to work. And so those are kind of the approaches that people have taken to kind of deal with the puzzle. Those are inadequate. Those do not fix the puzzle. They just make it work. They might fix one side, then you turn it over and everything else is still messed up. And so what we're doing this morning is we're going to be looking at some of these initial steps in solving this big mystery with all of its apparent contradictions and paradoxes. And so if you have your Bible, look at Luke 10 and follow along as I read verses 21 through 24. And just as a reminder, the 70 have been sent out. They've healed the sick, cast out demons, preached the gospel, reassembled. They're rejoicing that the demons were subject to them. And Jesus says, don't rejoice at that. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And then now Jesus is going to do some rejoicing himself. At this time, verse 21 says, Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. 
All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, or who the Son is, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eye are the eyes which see the things you see, for I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things you see and did not see them and hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. Here we see Jesus praising the Father. And the first thing he praises the Father for is rather disturbing. And when he praises God, Father, I am so glad you hide the truth from certain people so they can't be saved. That scrambles the cube. Then he praises the Father because the Father reveals truth to others. And he says, and everything has been given to me. And then he turns to the disciples and says, by the way, you guys know me. You guys have heard me. I have revealed the Father to you. I want you to know that kings and prophets in the past Long to be able to hear the things that you have heard and to see the things that you have seen. And so this is the text which obviously shows God's sovereignty because no one can know the Father or the Son unless Jesus, Jesus by divine act wills it. And so it's obviously a sovereignty of God in salvation text. Now, in order to unravel these mysteries, we have to go back to some initial steps, and those initial steps are man and sin. We have to understand that. And so that's what we've been driving at. We've looked at man. We've looked at he's created perfect. He then fell. Eve was deceived. Adam willfully rebelled. They fell. And that was the beginning of sin in the human race. Before that, Satan rebelled with the demons in heaven. Now... This morning, we want to continue on from where we were last week, where we discovered that all men are sinners. That was kind of like the whole thrust of last week. Guess what? You're a sinner, in case you didn't know that. Um, And now we want to look at a little bit more about sin, three aspects specifically, that are going to begin to create in our minds the, the understanding of why God saves the way saves men the way that he saves them see when you start talking about god's sovereignty and salvation and all those scary paradoxical things you ask yourself how can that be and this is the answer this is the step that gets you to that answer now the problem is is i can't tell you everything i want All at once. Now, I would like to, but I can't. So you're just going to have to wait for another sermon after this in four weeks. And then one sermon after that, we'll get into the, 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 the solving of the puzzle. Okay? Beginning it, anyways. Um, and so that's what's going to happen. And so the first thing we want to understand is total depravity. What it means And what it does not mean. A few years back, there was a a Walt Disney animated picture called The Incredibles. And some of you, I'm sure, probably saw it. Um, It was, you know, two superheroes, a man and a woman, decide to hang up their superhero profession and settle down and have kind of a nice family. The problem is, is their children are have superpowers too, and it just causes a lot of interesting family dynamics. Well, in one part of the movie, the incredible family is forced to reveal their true identities while fighting against the psychotic enemy syndrome. And syndrome kidnaps their baby um, and is getting away in his rocket-propelled boots. Uh, he's launching off through, through the house roof and up to his jet, which is hovering above the incredible house. And uh, he's got the baby. And the parents think the baby doesn't have any powers, but the baby, when frightened, reveals that he has a whole arsenal of powers. Um, uh, Freaks out Syndrome. Syndrome drops the baby, and um, then uh, his mother catches him. 
Syndrome then it starts climbing into the gate and he vows and I'll be back to, you know, get you. And so Mr. Incredible is on the ground and he's looking around for something to throw at the jet. And the only thing that's close by is his Corvette. And so he grabs the Corvette and like a huge projectile hucks it in the air and explodes the jet and destroys Syndrome. And then all of this shrapnel explosion happens. And when it's all over, the camera pans back. And there in the middle of the street is a boy on a tricycle who has witnessed all of this. His eyes are bulging out and he says, that was totally wicked. (laughs) And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. (laughs) The totally wickedness of man. That's what depravity is. That's what it means. Men are totally wicked. But in a different way, the boy meant. The boy meant it was neat. And it was impressive. And it was fun. But the kind of totally wicked that we're going to look at this morning is neither impressive nor fun. And it carries huge consequences Because it is one of the barriers that stands in between men coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Some people don't like the term total depravity. It just eeks them. It's like, well, you know, I don't like that term. I mean, all I know is is, uh, that, you know, that that term isn't in the Bible. Well, neither is the Trinity. Neither are any other English words because the Bible is written in Hebrew and Greek. Um, But the Bible does teach total depravity. Some object saying, well, you know, I'm not totally depraved. Um, You know, I'm not as sinful as I can be. I, I do some good things. I mean, come on, I'm not that corrupt. And statements like this reveal a misunderstanding of what total depravity is. We saw last week that all of us like sheep have gone astray and each of us has turned to his own way. That the wages of sin are death and that we have sinned and all men sin and fall short of the glory of God. We pounded that into dust last week. This morning I want you to show you just how deep human depravity runs. And so you can understand that everybody is really bad off. Probably far worse off than you imagine. You know, you can come up to the average Christian and say, you know, are you a sinner? Oh, yes, I'm a sinner. You know, it's, it's acceptable among Christians to say, yeah, yeah, I'm a sinner. Uh, besides, 1 John 1, 8 says, and anyone who says he has no sin is a liar and the truth is not in him. Yeah, yeah, I'm a sinner. But what, a lot of times in their mind, what they're thinking is, yeah, I'm a sinner, but I'm not as bad as that guy. That other person, that unbeliever, or maybe even another Christian, you know, I'm pretty good compared to them. And and this kind of uh, outlook is incorrect because who we need to compare ourselves with is an infinite holy God. Take your life and compare it to infinite holiness, perfect sinlessness. Then you begin to start on the correct path to solving the puzzle. Because then you begin to see yourself as way, way below infinite holiness. I mean, you probably can't even see it from where you're at. So we stand before the mirror of God's word. We look closely into the word. And what does it teach us? It teaches us that men are totally depraved. The Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology defines total depravity as this. Quote, it is the scriptural teaching that mankind is totally, thoroughly, completely corrupted by sin in all of his being. Total depravity means that man is unable to please God on his own or earn any saving merit from God. It also is helpful to understand what total depravity does not mean. One, it does not mean that people cannot do things which are relatively good in the sight of other men. Two, it does not mean that all men are as sinful as they can be or become. Three, it does not mean that men have no concept of good and evil. Four, it does not mean that men, because of their depravity, will indulge in every sin to every degree, end quote. That is an excellent definition. Because what it does is, is it lets us know what total depravity means and what it does not mean. 
You have a large glass of water. It's still crystal clear spring water. And you just take an eighth of a teaspoon of sewage and just put it in there and stir it up. Now, would you say that that glass of water is now corrupted? Now, would you drink part of it? No. Um, Does that mean that you can't put more sewage in there? No, you could. You you could increase the concentration of sewage in there. But that wouldn't change the constant fact that the whole glass is corrupted, whether it has an eighth of a teaspoon, a teaspoon, or a tablespoon in there, right? It's totally corrupted. That is, the effects of that sewage has spread out in all the parts of the glass. Well, that's how it is with total depravity. Total depravity doesn't mean you can't sin more. What it means is, is sin has permeated, soaked into, saturated every part of your being so that you are totally, in all parts, infected and corrupted by sin. We have already traced the origin of sin back to Satan. We learned that sin entered in through Adam and Eve, the human race. And now we want to talk about this problem. This problem of sin pervading the human race. How can that be? Well, it comes from two different areas. The first, and here's the big word, and you know, I'm not into using big words on you just to make your eyes go sideways and fall asleep, but the word is imputation. Okay, there it is, a shun word for you. Imputation. What is that? Well, the word basically means this, to charge to someone's account. That's what it means. Let's say that I knew that you had um, an account at some retailer and that you just went in there and just they knew you and just said, you know, just charged my account. And then they'd send you a bill. Well, I knew that. So I went in that store and I bought a whole bunch of stuff and said, yeah, just charge it to so-and-so's account. You would then receive a bill for what I bought. It would show up in your mailbox, not mine, because I have imputed it to your account. That's what imputation is. This is the concept. Our sin and guilt at birth comes from Adam and Eve. It is imputed to us. And because of that, we are sinful from the get-go. And guilty from the get-go. Listen to how imputation is described in Isaiah 53. Now, I'm just, I just took the phrases out of here. The first kind of imputa- uh, imputation that we come to is the imputation of our guilt to Christ. Let's talk about that. I think most of us realize that when Jesus died on the cross, our Guilt was laid upon him, right? Our sins were put upon him. That is imputation. Listen to how Isaiah describes this. He says, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. He was pierced through for our transgressions and was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell on him. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself a guilt offering. He will bear their iniquities. He himself bore the sins of many and interceded for transgressors. Did you see that? How did that happen? If Jesus was sinless and Jesus never sinned, how did all of our sins get dumped on him? Imputation. Imputation. All of our sins were charged to his account. There is another kind of imputation. And that is the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. Not only did Jesus have our sin imputed to him and he die in our place. So he also in dying for our sins reckons to those who believe in him imputes charges to the account of those who believe in him his perfect righteousness. 
Listen to how Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, how did that happen? How do you and I become the righteousness of God in Christ? Through imputation. Because God reckons Christ's righteousness to us. God credits to our account the very infinite righteousness of Jesus himself. It's like getting a Starbucks card that just has unlimited usage. And you can, you know, frappuccino into oblivion. You just never run it dry. When the guy puts on the balance, he gives you back the receipt. It just says infinite. You can just... Keep charging, keep charging. Well, that's what Jesus does to us. He gives us infinite righteousness. He gives us his perfect righteousness. And so it's always our, and the count never runs dry. God sees us in Christ as perfect and never-ending righteousness. It's just amazing in light of how sinful we are. There is another category of imputation. Adam's sin and guilt. And this is what relates to us this morning most directly. Adam's sin and guilt is imputed or charged to our account. You know, when you get like a brand new credit card, it comes in the mail. You've got your new credit card, has zero balance. That's how Adam and Eve were before the fall. Zero debt to God. God gives them one law. They break the one law. And now they have a debt that's so huge they could never repay it. They can't even pay the interest. They're just in debt, buried in debt. Never to be able to pay the debt themselves that they owe to an infinitely just God. And so something has to happen. You see, when, if God's going to forgive somebody, if he's going to save somebody, he doesn't just say, well, I forgive you. Come on into heaven and I'll just pretend it never happened. No, God always gets his pound of flesh. He will by no means allow the guilty to go unpunished. Somebody's going to pay and they're going to pay to the full extent And so if you have a sinful human, the only way you can redeem, the only way you can atone for, the only way you can forgive that sinner of their sins is to find a perfectly holy and righteous person who of their own accord is willing to die in the place of as a substitute for the guilty person. And I'm telling you, perfect people are hard to come by. Especially when you're a sinner and your wife's a sinner and the only children you can give birth to are sinners. That's just a miracle that it could ever happen. But it did happen because the sin is passed down through the father. And so God in his plan was Jesus's father making Jesus God and without sin and Being born of a woman, he was fully human. So he was then able to be a perfect man, fully man, to die for men willingly, voluntarily, as a substitute for sinners. That's how it works. This is why, though, when you read in the Bible, when you read certain texts like Psalm 51.5, where David says, in sin, my mother conceived me. And you're thinking, how could that be? How could David at the moment of conception be a sinner? How could he then go on to say in Psalm 58 verse 3 that the wicked are estranged from the womb and that these who speak lies go astray from birth? How is that? How can somebody be conceived in sin and born a sin when they haven't even done anything yet? Imputation. Imputation. In the genetic code, so to speak, of Adam and Eve was sin and the curse. And so the only thing they could give birth to is other sinners who had their same sin, curse, and guilt. And so then everyone who's born is born with Adam's sin and guilt imputed, reckoned, charged to their account. Let's see this in the scriptures. Turn to Romans chapter 5. 
Romans chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 12 through 14, and then verse 19. I'll just do a quick commentary on this, and you'll be able to see how it works out. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. And notice what it says here in verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world. And of course, we know who that man is. That man is Adam. And death reigned through sin. Why? Because everybody knows the wages of sin is what? Is death. And so Adam died spiritually and later physically. And so death spread to all men. Because all sinned. Implied. All men die as a consequence of Adam's sin. Because all sinned. Implied in Adam. Now you say, well, how do you know that? Because you keep reading. For until the law, sin was in the world. Now, you could paraphrase this this way. Between the time of Adam and the time of the law of Moses, sin was in the world. Right? You bet. Lots of it. Plenty. That's why God sent the flood. But sin is not imputed or reckoned. When there is no law. Oh, what does he mean by that? Here it is. Now, if you, if there's no law, can you break the law? If no one's written any rules, can you break the rule? No, you can't break a rule unless there's a rule to be broken. Now, notice Paul's argument here. It's pretty brilliant. He's saying between Adam and Moses, He says, for until the law, until the law of Moses, sin was in the world. How could that be? How could that be? He goes on to say, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. You don't have a law. You don't break the law. And no one's going to charge to your account the violation because there isn't any violation when there's no law to be violated. Verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. How could that be? Well, obviously, it's not because of that original law. There was only one law given in the garden. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, They both blew that one. And then after that, the cherubim were stationed there. So no one could even attempt to break the law anymore. It was just over. I mean, that law was done with. So how could there then be? Sin in the world, if there was no law, how how come sin reigned and death reigned between Adam and Moses when there was no law to be violated? How come men were dying? Look at the middle of verse, verse 14. Even over those, death reigned, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. What does that mean? What was Adam's offense and sin like God said here's the law don't eat of the tree he then ate of the tree there was a law and he broke it but here he's saying even over those who didn't have a law and didn't sin against the law like Adam did death reigned how look down at verse 19 for as through the one man's disobedience now get this the many were made sinners There it is, imputation. Through one man's disobedience, Adam, all of his children were made sinners because of his sin. Now, that doesn't mean we don't commit our own sins. We do a lot of that. But I just want you to understand that even apart from what we do, which is plenty, we're conceived in sin, born in sin, and then we sin because we're sinners. It's bad. It's really bad. Paul summarizes pretty much everything he says in Romans 5 here in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, where he says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. In one man, you are guilty. Now, some don't like the thought that they have Adam's sin and guilt imputed to them or reckoned to them or charged to their account. They're saying, well, how could that be? I mean, you know, I couldn't help it. Uh, you know, I didn't do anything. I was just born this way. How could, how could I be guilty? I mean, uh, come on. Well, 
Think about it this way. Let's just talk about the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Do you earn Christ's righteousness? Does God give it to you because you deserve it? Because you work for it? Because you're smart? Because you do certain procedures? No, it's all by grace. It's unmerited and unearned. It is given to you freely, not because of anything you do. Now, follow me here. If verses that we've looked at talk about, and we just did, the imputation of Adam's sin and the imputation of Christ's righteousness side by side, you can't have one mean one thing and the other mean the other thing. If we receive Christ's righteousness because of nothing we do, then we receive Adam's sin and guilt because of nothing we do. That's imputation. And that's bad. And that's why we need saved. Now it gets worse. It gets worse. Because the doctrine of total depravity not only says that we have Adam's sin and guilt imputed to us, that it's just part of our being because we are descended from Adam and Eve who are sinners, and therefore he, being the head, the father of all the descendants, all of us, everybody who's ever been born, because he is that person and he is a sinner, he passes down like, you know, genetic code, all of his sin and guilt. And so... Even apart from what we do, we're sinners, and it's bad. And that sin permeates every part of our being. It doesn't mean we're all as sinners we could be, or we've all sinned as much as we are able to. It just means that that sin affects all of us in our physical being, and especially our spiritual, non-physical being. Now turn to Genesis 6-5, and now we want to look at the second Step in unsolving this puzzle, and that is understand the degree to which men are corrupted by sin. Understand the degree to which men are corrupted by sin. Now, Genesis 6 5 gives us the reason why God sent the flood. There's something wrong going on at this time in the earth, and this is why. God sends the flood. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. That's bad. That's bad. We learn here that men, mankind has great evil, that every intent... Every thought of his heart, which is the heart being the control center of his whole life, is only evil all the time. Other than that, you're fine. (laughs) Now, if you're wondering, but yeah, he sent the flood. Yeah, he sent the flood. And we read right after the flood in Genesis 8, 21, that God said, I'm no longer going to destroy the earth with a flood, even though the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. It didn't fix it didn't eradicate sin from mankind it just decreased the number of sinners that's all that's all the flood did turn to jeremiah 17 in this section jeremiah chapter 17 there is a discussion of those who don't trust god those who do trust god and then He gets down to verse 9 and he says this. The heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And this term desperately means incurably or beyond all cure. Man's heart is incurably wicked, Jeremiah says. Now, I know what some of you are probably thinking right now. You're probably thinking, oh, yeah, but Jack, (laughs) when we come to Christ, we receive a new heart. And that's true. But do not confuse the term, term new heart with sinless heart. Yes, we receive a new heart, but it doesn't mean that it's sinless. And every Christian who's honest with himself knows that because he thinks evil thoughts. You know, you go to a, you know, a computer store and you buy some cds and you know they have all these packages of different kinds there and you're looking at cdrs and cdrws and you're thinking what what's that well 
Um, you, you learn that the CDRs are the readable compact disc, which means you can write to them one time and then it's over. You just get it and it's just over. And that's how we are when we're born. We've had Adam's sin and guilt just written to us and it's over. Now, when you come to Christ, you get a CDRW (laughs) heart. That is, you get a heart that can be erased and rewritten, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, unlike CDRWs, which can be rewritten in just a minute or two, we can, we spend a whole life trying to get our hearts rewritten and then we never finish the process in this life. And there's still plenty of sin in there and it's plenty deep. It's plenty wicked. And so what happens is when you look at the scriptures and it talks about a new heart, it is a heart that unlike never before, when before it couldn't even understand the scriptures, it couldn't be rewritten, it couldn't be changed. Now it can be changed. Now it can be rewritten. And if you go to the scriptures, if you meditate on the word of God, if you read the word of God, if you study the word of God, if you listen to good teaching and preaching and read good books, if you do that and go to Bible studies and you get God's word and you get it in your life and you strive to apply it by God's grace, what will happen is it will rewrite your heart. And the heart then is the control center of your whole life. That is why Solomon said, guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Everything in your life boils forth from your heart. You've got to guard your heart. And that is why it is so critical to guard all of your senses, what you look at, what you listen to, what you smell and taste and touch. Why? Because that's how information gets in. And just like you can rewrite by doing what is Correct by studying the Bible, hearing good teaching and applying it. So you can also defile your heart. If you put trash in there, you can write more trash on there and actually go backwards. And so you don't want to do that. Paul describes our transformation, our progression, our rewriting process in 2 Corinthians 3.18 when he says this. Listen to this. But we all... With unveiled face, he's just been talking about Moses, you remember, he went up on the mountain, saw God, had to put a veil over his face because he was glowing. Um, we with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. We look in the scriptures, we see, it's like a mirror, James says too, we see the glory of the Lord are being transformed, changed rewritten into the same image that is into the image of Christ from glory to glory. Just as from the Lord, the spirit. And that's what it is to mature in Christ. That is what sanctification is. You are rewriting your heart. You are growing and changing from glory to glory. And it's a whole life process. And then finally, when you die or when Christ comes back, he just does quick erase, reformat. You're perfect. And every Christian knows in their heart that they are a sinner. And that is why we need to be diligent to use those means God has given us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, as Paul says in Romans 12.1. So our heart is bad. Jesus speaking to his disciples about the heart of men said this in Mark chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. And just listen to Jesus' description of the heart of men. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within And defile the man. Jesus pictures our house like a sin manufacturing plant that's just producing sinful thought after sinful thought, driving sinful deed after sinful deed. It's like a big black sooty chimney that's just belching out noxious fumes all the time. There's your heart, your new heart. Mm. Yes, you can rewrite it, but man, there's still a lot of soot in there, isn't there? I mean, don't you just wish you could just get those things out of your head? Yeah. 
Paul in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 23 says of mankind, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their speculations. That is, that when they looked at things and tried to assess things, their assessment was futile. He goes on to say, and their foolish heart was darkened. The control center of their life was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image of form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. You know, worshiping beetles and frogs and stuff. It's like, what is that? It's the exchange of mankind. You ever want, you want to know the question? People, what about the natives in Africa? They're without excuse. That's the question. Why? This is why. Because God has revealed himself to man. All men in three distinct areas. In creation and what has been made. In our consciences. And he has written our law in our heart and given us a general understanding of right and wrong. But all men universally without exception take that truth. That understanding of God which is available in those three areas. Conscious nature and the law of God written in their hearts. And they all take that truth. And they suppress that truth and unrighteousness. And say I will not submit to it or learn anything about God. Because I don't want to think about God. God. That's what he's saying. Turn to Ephesians 4. You think it's bad, it's worse. And we're not even done. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. Paul speaking about unbelieving Gentiles. Notice how he describes them. Now remember, I want you to, I want you to follow here. We're trying to answer this question. How has sin And the fall of man and the imputation of Adam's sin and our own sins. How has that affected how we see God, respond to God and respond to his truth? We're trying to see how sin has corrupted us. We've been seeing a futile in their speculations, foolish heart darkened. Now let's look at this text, Ephesians 4. 17 through 19. This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord that you no longer, um, That you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. Being darkened in their understanding. Excluded from the life of God. Because of the ignorance that is in them. Because of the hardness of their heart. And they having become callous have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Here, Paul describes seven effects of sin on the human race. And just get them here in bullet points. One, they have futile thinking. Two, they have a darkened understanding. Three, they are excluded from the life of God, which means they're spiritually dead. Four, they have a hard heart. Five, they have a callous conscience. Six, they are given over to sensuality. And seven, they practice every kind of impurity with greediness. That is bad. That is really bad. Paul speaking to Titus and Titus 1.15 says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. And that describes everybody you know who doesn't know Jesus as their Savior. That family member, the co-worker, the neighbor, everyone, everyone. You, you start thinking about that. It's like, well, no wonder that they can't understand. I mean, no kidding, man. They are just, man, that's bad. People are in bad shape. Hmm. That's why they need saved. Now, let's talk about the effects of sin a little bit more in relationship to God and the truth. You need to realize how the depravity of man actually repels men from the truth. It's not only gives them convoluted thoughts, it makes them run the other way. Yes, all men are sinners. Yes, they are defiled. But notice how they respond. Let's look at John chapter 3. John chapter 3. This is right after God so loved the world, you know, that he gave his only begotten son. Look at John chapter 3 verse 19. And notice here how men respond. 
to the gospel, to Christ. He says, and this is the judgment that light has come into the world. That is the truth of the gospel, Jesus Christ. And men loved darkness rather than light for their deeds are evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. He's talking about human cockroaches here. You turn on the light and what do they do? They all run away. I mean, you ever deal with this? You know, you're sharing the gospel. You're talking about the Bible with somebody at work. It's like, oh, yeah, I, you know, I don't really want to hear. You know, what about the natives in Africa? And then you say, well, you, well, let me say, hey, I've got work to do. Yeah, we'll see you later. What about the Mets? Bye. I mean, they don't want to talk about it. They're repelled from the truth. Well, this is a huge thing. As we're going to see, we're getting there. This has huge implications in the way we do evangelism. You wonder why people don't want to listen. There it is. They love darkness rather than light for their deeds are evil and they do not come to the light lest their deeds should be exposed. That, that, that rep- they are repelled from the very thing they need to save them. Driven from within. Turn over to John chapter 5. A couple chapters over, verse 39. John chapter 5, verse 39. Jesus here is speaking to the unbelieving religious leaders. And notice what he says. Notice how sin has affected these unbelieving religious leaders. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that bear witness of me. And you are unwilling to come to me. That you may have life. I do not receive glory from men. But I know you. That you do not have the love of God in yourself. I have come in my father's name. And you do not receive me. If another man shall come in his name. You will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another. And you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. Do you see how these verses describe the effects of sin and unbelievers? One, it makes them unwilling to come to Christ. Two, they do not have the love of God within themselves. Which means they have the hate of God within themselves. Three, they do not receive Jesus. Four, they receive false teachers. Five, they do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. No wonder why people respond the way they do when we try to share the gospel with them. That is why. That is why. Sin has messed with them big time. Turn over to Romans chapter 8. And if you know Romans 8, Romans 8 is like the most wonderful, encouraging part of the whole book. And as he talks, after he's just said that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, he now begins to compare the man who he talks about, the man who is the spiritual man, the man who walks in the spirit with the person who is in the flesh or the unbeliever. In the flesh is a synonym for the unbeliever, somebody living for the flesh. And he says this starting in verse 5. Look there. Again, note, watch for how sin affects men's response to God and truth. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mindset in the flesh is death, but the mindset in the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I don't care. How good it looks to society. What a philanthropist you are. How many times you walk the old lady across the street and throw your coat in the mud so the princess can stand on it. It never pleases God. Not even a little bit. Nothing an unbeliever does ever pleases God. They are only and always hostile toward God and they cannot please him. 
That is bad when the whole purpose of your being created is to glorify God and enjoy it forever. You think, well, Jack, you know, I mean, at least we have the gospel that can lead us to Jesus. And that's true. But turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Notice how men on their own will respond to the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18, Paul is giving his whole paradigm of how he did evangelism. And he says, for the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, literally moronic. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Here we have these two responses. Unbelievers, they look at the gospel and go, that is dumb. That is stupid. That's foolish. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The second chapter of 1 Corinthians. Verse 14. He's just explained in the preceding context that Christians have this great thing because we are able to understand the mind of God because we have this Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God within us. And the Holy Spirit within us helps us to interpret the things of God. But the problem is, is the natural man, another synonym he uses to describe an unbeliever, doesn't have the Holy Spirit. So let's see how the natural man, the man who isn't saved, who doesn't have the Holy Spirit in them, how that person responds to the things of the Spirit, the Word of God. He says this, but the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him. Same thing we saw in verse 18. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And this phrase here, cannot understand them, means this. It means he does not have the dunamis, the power within him, to have a gnosko, a, a intimate relationship with the truth. He sure he can be a Hebrew Greek scholar. He can know all the stories of the Bible, but he doesn't know it in an experiential, intimate way like a brand new believer does until he comes to faith in Christ. He cannot get to the truth, though it is right there in front of him. He, he has no access. It's like me giving you an AM radio and say, hey, dial in this FM station. Well, try all you want. You can't do it. Back, forth, back, forth. Uh, you could wear out the dial. You're never going to get an FM station out of that AM radio. It's just not going to work. The problem is, is those who don't know God don't have the spirit of God. So they are trapped because they are unable to access the truth, which saves them. They don't have the power within themselves to access that Truth, And you need to think about the implications of this when you're evangelizing somebody, when you're sharing the gospel with them. You, 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 sometimes we feel guilty because, oh, I didn't say the right thing. I should have used this argument and I should have used that verse. And, you know, I should have tried this approach and, oh, maybe I should have prayed harder. Maybe I said too much. Maybe I didn't say enough. You know, we just kind of torment ourselves because we want to see that person come to Christ. But listen, you can't grant anybody the ability to understand the things of the Spirit of God. No one knows the Father or the Son unless the Son wills to reveal Him. Oh. Let's look at one more text. Romans chapter 3. And we'll close with this one. Romans chapter 3. Now, if you've studied the book of Romans, you know that the theme verse in the book of Romans is Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. And then starting in verse 18, he starts talking about the wrath of God coming upon men because they're sinners. He then says, listen, if you're a Jew, you're a sinner. Listen, if you're a moral person, you're a sinner. Listen, if you're a Gentile, you're a sinner. And it's interesting that Paul, when explaining the gospel, starts out where? Men are sinners. So guess where I got the idea? Um, so Paul then explains in great detail how all classes of men, all nationalities of men, men with truth, men without truth, uh, at least the written truth, but because all men have 
creation, their conscience and the law of God were in their heart. All men are without excuse. They're all sinners and they're all guilty before God. And then he says this in Romans chapter three, verse nine. And just to make sure he's summing up the total depravity of man. And just to make sure that everybody knows this isn't some kind of weird idea. The apostle Paul has conjured up. He decides to only quote in this section scriptures from the old Testament. And so he gathers together all of these texts from the inspired Old Testament scriptures and he lays it all down so that everybody knows this is the truth. And what does he say? What then? Verse 9. Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. He's just explained that in the preceding chapters. Verse 10. Just as is written now, he's going to start quoting the Old Testament scriptures. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one, none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. The path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God in their eyes. All quotes from the Old Testament. And we know, he goes on to say, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and the whole world may become accountable to God. That is, everybody needs salvation. You want to understand predestination? You want to understand election? You want to understand the mysteries of the Rubik's Cube of, of God's sovereignty and how he saves men and why he saves men? You've got to understand this, that men are totally corrupt and totally unable in themselves to even begin to respond to the truth. They don't have the power in themselves. They're just corrupted. Their thoughts are corrupted. They're, they're running the other way. It's, you know, it's like being in a dark desert and somebody holds up a light to help you see and you just keep running into the darkness. You, you don't want it. You do not want it. Now, it's just going to be so fun to get into this stuff. Mm -mm. Just one more sermon on some other pretty fun things. And then when we get through those fun things, then we're getting into the really fun things. But in closing, what I want to do is I want to just read a portion of a Puritan prayer. If you've ever, um, I know many of you have have gotten the little book, uh, The Valley of the Vision. It's just a collection of Puritan prayers. There's also an audio version by Max McLean, which is very wonderful that you can just listen to in your car. Um, and in one of the prayers is called The Cry of the Convicted Sinner. I'm just going to read part of this. And so why don't you just bow your heart before the Lord and I'm going to read this portion and then I'll finish up in prayer. Save me from myself, from the artifices and deceits of sin, from the treachery of my perverse nature, from denying thy charge against my offenses, from a life of continual rebellion against thee, from wrong principles, views and ends. For I know that all my thoughts Affections, desires, and pursuits are alienated from thee. I have acted as if I hated thee, although thou art love itself. Have contrived to tempt thee to the uttermost, to wear out thy patience. I have lived evilly in, a wor- in word and action. Had I been a prince, I would have long ago crushed such a rebel. Had I been a father, I would long since have rejected my child. O thou father of my spirit, thou king of my life, cast me not into destruction. Drive me not from thy presence, but wound my heart that it may be healed. Break it that thine own hand may make it whole. Father, we are so grateful to have your word, to have your truth. We are thankful for what you're doing at Calvary Bible Church. Purify us. 
may we all confess our sins. And if we've sinned against others, may we confess our sins to them so that we may walk in your spirit and walk in holiness. Father, if there's anybody here who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, who has never repented of their sins, turn from their sins and receive the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that right now in their pew, they would do that. They would cry out, confessing, admitting that they are a hopeless, hopeless sinner. The father, they cannot on their own rescue themselves that they need Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection to save them. Father, please rescue them as only you can. And father, help the rest of us this next week to take some time to think about what great sinners we are that we might marvel at what a great savior you are. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.